my name is Tim Park, and uh, I'm just so happy to be able to worship with you today on this 4th of July. And uh, we thank God for the privilege that we have to worship Him freely and openly, and we never want to take that for granted. Uh, you know, I thank God for the grace that He has poured out on us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And my prayer for all of us today is that we would shine the light of Jesus brightly on this important day in our nation. So happy 4th to all of you. I'm looking forward to opening God's Word with you today. I'm also looking forward to sharing in communion later on in our service. And for those who are worshiping from home, we invite you to take a moment to gather your elements and to join us for communion at the end of our time today. Well, throughout our series, you've been hearing me say how James was influenced by two specific sources. One was Jewish wisdom literature, and the other source was the Sermon on the Mount spoken by his own brother, Jesus. You know, the book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. You've heard me say that. And so James talks much about the same topics that we read in the Old Testament wisdom literature books, and he refers back to his brother's sermon quite often. I think that's pretty cool, right? And Jesus must be so smiling, you know, that his brother refers back to his sermon quite often. And in today's passage, what we have is a perfect example of this marriage between Jewish wisdom literature and the Sermon on the Mount— coming together in the form of this letter written by James to exhort the believers to live according to their new nature in Christ. And the title of my message today is Wise Faith. Wise Faith. And you might recall a few weeks ago, we said that not all faiths are the same. There is a faith that does not save. That's called a dead faith. The opposite of a dead faith is a living faith, and that's why we titled our series Faith Alive. God's call for us is to live according to our living faith. Now, the opposite of a wise faith is a foolish faith. And today's passage is all about two types of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from above that produces a wise faith. And then there's a wisdom that comes from below that leads to a foolish faith. Now, let me say this at the outset. What makes today's subject so challenging is the fact that we are often drawn to the wisdom that comes from below. And the reason why that is is the wisdom that comes from below is very attractive. And it's attractive because it ultimately gratifies the self. And let's face it, who doesn't like it when the self is gratified? I imagine most people would prefer to live an easier life than a harder life. Most people would prefer to get ahead in life than to be held back in life. And I don't know about you, but... I don't necessarily like it when I'm taken advantage of by other people. Most people would not want to be taken advantage of by 
others. And most people want to keep their rights, not give up their rights. We like it when we mess up, people show us grace. We like that. But then we might not be so quick to extend that grace to others when they fall short of our expectations. And so today's passage, I'm going to tell you ahead of challenging because while in theory you and I subscribe to a heavenly wisdom, in practice we often see the earthly wisdom lived out in our lives. Turn with me to James chapter 3. We'll start in verse 13 today. James chapter 3. We'll be in verses 13 to 18 this morning. I'll start with verse 13. James says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, right away, in this first verse alone, we see Jewish wisdom literature and the Sermon on the Mount featured clearly. James asks the rhetorical question, who is wise and understanding among you? In that rhetorical question, what we see is Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all this Old Testament Jewish wisdom literature that are filled with nuggets of wisdom. And so he asks this question, but of course, he doesn't want us to give him the answer. He's going to give us the answer. It's a rhetorical question. And he says, it's the one who shows his or her works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, there's a phrase that we don't often hear, meekness of wisdom. Now, let's think about that first word, meekness. Where else have we seen that word? The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, most of us, I imagine, would prefer to be described by words other than meek. We like words like smart and sharp and bright and attractive. When we get together with extended family, after not seeing them for, oh, I don't know, 15 months or so, we gather together with all these relatives. When we get together, we like it when they say to us, oh, you look great. You're so beautiful. You're so handsome. You're so smart. Congratulations. You're going to succeed in life. We love hearing things like that. We don't show up to a gathering like that hoping that people will say to us, oh, I haven't seen you in so long. You look so meek. You look so meek. That's something that we don't often want to hear said about ourselves because meek sounds weak. In fact, in the English language, it rhymes. And so we think meek equals weak, and weak equals meek. And I think some of our modern-day dictionaries, they've kind of perpetuated that understanding. Listen to this one definition given by one dictionary about the word meek. It says this, meek is overly submissive or compliant, spiritless and tame. But that is not the kind of meekness that Jesus talked about. And that is not the kind of meekness James wrote about. I, I hope 
to, to shift your understanding of meekness. There is a biblical meekness, and the picture that I want you to paint in your mind is this. Biblical meekness is a demonstration of power under control. It's as if, like, this guy, big guy, could just knock you down with a flick of a finger, but he doesn't. Demonstration of power under control. And that's why humility and meekness go hand in hand. And humility and meekness, church, they are essential qualities for spiritual maturity. You might recall, in last week's message, we talked about how James warned the believers not to aspire too quickly to the office of teacher and pastor and spiritual leader. You see, because he knew that they wanted to aspire to that position for self-gratification. They were attracted to the prestige that came along with the office of teacher, but they didn't consider the responsibility. It was their pride that motivated them. And as we know, pride is a sure sign of spiritual immaturity. You know, we often think that wisdom is marked by the number of wrinkles on our forehead <laughs> or the number of gray hairs on our head. Now, yes, life experiences, they teach us much. And yes, the older we get, the more we experience life. But let's think about this. If we continue to make the same bad choices over and over again, never to learn from our mistakes, then the consequences will be far more severe than just wrinkles and gray hair. The wise person is a humble person. The mature person is a meek person. You show me someone humble, and you show me someone meek, and you've shown me a spiritually mature person. But again, what makes this so challenging for the follower of Jesus Christ is that our society doesn't often celebrate the humble and meek. Our society likes to celebrate those who have made it big. They've made a name for themselves. They're highly ambitious. And even if they have to step on toes or use people to get to the top, that's all part of the game. And it's okay. Our society likes to celebrate that type of person. And here's the thing. As followers of Jesus Christ, we face temptations to play that same game. We feel that, well, if I don't do that in my business, if I don't do that amongst my relationships, if I don't expand my network, if I don't schmooze and get my name out there, then I'm going to fall behind. And so we feel the pressure to play the game. Sometimes people end up manipulating others and using them for their own gain. And then when they're no longer deleted, then they kind of push them aside. Have you ever 
Have you ever felt like you were used by someone? It is not a good feeling at all. That all they wanted from you was what you could offer. And when you can no longer offer that thing, then they throw you by the wayside. The humble and meek, they don't use people. The humble and meek serve people. You show me someone who serves others, and you've shown me a spiritually mature person. And here's an important element about serving. The humble and meek, in other words, the spiritually mature, they serve others even if those good deeds are never reciprocated back to them. You know, the earthly wisdom mentality of our culture, it says this. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch your back. In other words, do me a favor now. Do me a solid now, and then I'll return that favor down the road. And we see that. We see that in business. We see that in community. We see that in relationships. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch your back. Heavenly wisdom says this. Come over here. Allow me to scratch your back. And then I'll massage your neck. And then I'll massage your feet. With no thought of, you return the favor to me now. Heavenly wisdom does deeds with no thought of reciprocation. Do you see why earthly wisdom is more attractive than heavenly wisdom? Because heavenly wisdom often goes against our desire to have our back scratched. And let's face it, when we scratch someone's back and our back hasn't been scratched by them, we start to resent them. When we give and give and give, and we don't get anything back, we start to develop bitterness and resentment. James continues on. In verses 14 to 16, he says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You know, it's amazing that James addressed the exact same issues in the first century that we deal with today in the 21st century, not only in society, but even here inside the church walls. It's important to note that James still has in mind those who want to aspire to the office of teacher when he wrote this section. And he warned them, don't be ambitious for spiritual offices if you don't know the responsibility that comes along with it. He knew their motives. They wanted the spotlight. They were attracted to the prestige, but they didn't consider the responsibility. And what complicated matters at that time was this. The new believers who wanted to become teachers they were actually gifted in teaching. 
But did you know that having spiritual gifts does not automatically qualify us to exercise those gifts? That's one of the most common misconceptions about spiritual gifts. We think, oh, if I have a gift, then I need to exercise that gift. It's almost as if we are entitled to exercise our gifts. And some people in the early church, they were abusing their spiritual gifts. And they were using those gifts for their own self-gratification and self-promotion. And it became a competition. So in the early church, someone would exercise a gift and someone else would come along and start envying that gift and thinking, well, I could do that too. So then they started to try to outdo one another, one-up each other in their spiritual gifts. And they were abusing those gifts. And you know, whenever there's competition within a group, here's what happens. Jealousy often follows. When there's unhealthy competition within a group, oftentimes you'll see jealousy. When I was growing up as a teenager in Orange County, several of my friends were part of a small cluster of churches in Orange County that had gained a reputation for having incredibly talented musicians, vocalists, rappers, breakdancers. At that time, when I was growing, growing up as a teenager, it was not uncommon to go to a church event and see some incredibly talented young people. In fact, a few of them, a few of my friends, ended up making it big in the music industry. And they had millions of fans following them. And that was, that was how high this talent level was in Orange County at that time when I was a teenager. And there was this one particular church where they seemed to have like a, a plethora of talented singers. And within this group, there were these two girls who stood head and shoulders above the rest. They, they were just a notch above. Their talent was just unmistakable. They were incredible vocalists. And so they were at the same church. And because they were such good vocalists, what often happens is this. Whenever there's a church event, a church rally, a church function, they would often be given solo parts in those performances. So they kind of go back and forth. One would sing a solo, and then the other would sing a solo. Everything started out nicely. But then eventually, there was tension between the two girls. And that tension grew and grew because what happened was they both started to gain their own following. And people would say, well, I think she's better. Well, I think she should be given longer solos. It got so bad that both of their moms would pressure the worship leader to feature their daughter more. And this became a season of tension, of conflict, of jealousy. You know, that reminds me of something a pastor friend of mine said. A few years back, 
he took on the role of head coach of a local high school boys varsity tennis team. So he was still pastoring at that time. He still is the senior pastor of his church. But for uh, some years, he became the head coach of the boys varsity tennis team. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, boy, I thought being a pastor was tough until I started coaching high school tennis. And what he was referring to was this. He said that every day he would receive emails and text messages and voicemails from disgruntled parents. Coach, why didn't my son make the cut? Coach, why didn't my son make varsity? Why isn't my son getting more playing time? So he's thinking, whoo, pastoring is easy <laughs> compared to coaching high school tennis. You know, as human beings, we're good at self-promotion. As human beings, we're good at defending ourselves and defending those who represent us. Why? Because we like to be liked. We want to hear praises from those around us. And now more than ever, we're able to receive instant feedback in the form of likes and hearts and emojis. But here's what often happens. When a person starts to gain more attention or become more successful or becomes a bigger influencer, that success often leads to resentment from others. I think for some people, we like to celebrate the successes of our friends. But a lot of times, people don't want their friends to be too successful. Because the more successful they are, the less of a limelight they get to experience. And that's just the way we as human beings are. When someone comes along and does a little bit better than us, we become a little bit jealous. And that happens in any industry. Music, entertainment, sports, business, and let's make it personal here. It happens in the parenting world. We read about how such and such parent has done this and that, super mom, super dad, and we feel so inferior. It happens in our schools. As students, they measure themselves by their following. And yes, it even happens in the church. Earthly wisdom says this. Look out for number one. Heavenly wisdom says look to the cross. Earthly wisdom says look out for number one. Heavenly wisdom, look to the cross. In Philippians 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul sounds a lot like James. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that is what Jesus did when he came to earth and he emptied himself of his privileges and he went to the cross 
to die for our sins. And James lays it out very clearly for us in the next two verses. In verses 17 and 18, he talks about this heavenly wisdom. Let's continue on. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, here in these two verses, what we have is we have the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit all wrapped up in one. Right here, the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit. James says, heavenly wisdom is pure. In other words, there are no ulterior motives. There are no hidden agendas. Earthly wisdom? When earthly wisdom is present, people are always wondering, what's the catch? Why is that person being nice to me? Why is that person doing this favor for me? Heavenly wisdom is pure. Heavenly wisdom is peaceable. It doesn't look to stir up trouble. And here's an important feature about heavenly wisdom being peaceable. It promotes peace for all. It promotes good for all and not simply for my own constituency. Heavenly wisdom is gentle. I love what one commentator says about gentleness. He says, gentleness is sweet reasonableness. And he goes on to say this about gentleness. It's the ability to extend to others the kindly consideration we would wish to receive ourselves. That's gentleness. Earthly wisdom says this. If you make enough noise, they'll have to listen to you. That's earthly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is full of mercy. It understands that God has extended mercy to us. Who are we then to withhold it from somebody else? Earthly wisdom says this. They get what they deserve. They get what's coming to them. They deserve it. Heavenly wisdom is full of good fruits. You know, the last couple of weeks we've been talking a lot about fruits, right? A couple of weeks ago I brought a lemon from our backyard. It was like the size of a grapefruit. Remember that? Last week we talked about orange trees and apple trees and how you can't make an orange tree produce apples. Why? Because nature always determines fruit. Heavenly wisdom results in good fruit. It doesn't just talk the talk like earthly wisdom. And then James says, heavenly wisdom is impartial. It is not prejudiced. It is not discriminatory. You know what earthly wisdom says? Earthly wisdom says this. I'm going to take care of my own at the expense of others. That's earthly wisdom. Partial and discriminatory. And then he says, heavenly wisdom is sincere. There is no hypocrisy. Earthly wisdom is all about being two-faced. You say one thing, and you walk away, and you do just the opposite. Or you say just the opposite. 
is being deceitful. And I love the way James closes out this section. He says it's a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where else have we heard the word peace? The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The term sons of God is a very distinct title used to describe Christians in the New Testament. When you were called a son of God or a daughter of God, what it meant was this. The person was saying to you, you resemble God. You look like God. Some of you are familiar with the phrase, I'm turning into my dad. I'm becoming my mom. Right? Over time, whether you like it or not, you become like your parents. No, I'm not going to. No, no. And then one day, you sound just like your mom. You sound just like your dad. You cannot help it. You cannot help it. Right? Have you seen uh, these progressive insurance commercials? Okay, they, they are hilarious, okay? There are a series of progressive insurance commercials, and the whole theme is, you know, becoming your parent, okay? Uh, I thought I'd show you one of them, okay? And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll understand uh, some of these things, and you can relate to some of these things. And so this is one of the progressive insurance commercials, becoming your parent. Take a look and listen. I got into this because I was a sufferer. I turned into my dad, but I came back. We need to silence our phone. Who knows where that button is? I don't have silent. Everyone does, right? If you're trying to live, laugh, and love? Yes. The answer is no. I can help new homeowners not become their parents. No fussing, no cussing, and no cussing. Now remember, they're not programs. They're TV shows. You woke up early. No one cares. Guess what? The waiter doesn't need to know your name. All right, if you didn't get some of them, come see me later. I'll explain them to you, okay? But, but I got a kick out of that, those, right? By the way, all our phones do have a silencer. They do, okay? I just want you to know that they do have a silencer. And if you don't know where it is, come see me afterward. And then I love it. The waiter doesn't need to know your name, right? Dads, they just love to go to restaurants and just talk to the servers. Oh, my name is the session session. This is my family, right? They just love that. And so I just got a kick out of that commercial. There are many more like that, okay? You know, in Jesus' day, most sons followed in their father's footsteps. They went into the same trade. They became their father. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was a carpenter, and he taught his son, Jesus, that same trade. When you spend enough time with people, you become like them. With our parents, when you spend enough time with them and you learn from them, you start to become like them. The highest honor that you and I could ever be called or could ever receive is to be called sons and daughters of God. That's the highest honor we could ever receive here on earth, to be called sons and daughters of God.
In other words, those who look like their father, who reconciled us to himself by his son who came to earth and bled on the cross. And he's given us the mission of promoting peace. Church, that is our calling as a church to live out the mission that Jesus gave to us. And we can be peacemakers in a world that is so desperately in need of peace. In a moment, we're going to share in communion. Here at our church, we partake of the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month. You don't need to be a member of our church to join us for communion. We do ask this, that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and he's your Savior. In a few moments, we'll give you the opportunity when you're ready to go up and to gather your elements. Your wafer and your juice, they are both contained in one package. I will ask you to do this. Uh, when you take them back to your seat, you can start preparing them, but hold on to them and we'll take them together. And uh, one word of encouragement, when you open up the package, uh, open, up, open them up carefully, there's a top peel that'll open up the wafer. And then there's a second one below it for the juice. Be very gentle. We don't want you to spill the juice onto your clothing. And so if you're at home, we'd be honored if you take a moment to gather your communion elements and join us virtually for the Lord's Supper. So here in person, I invite you when you're ready to come up to these tables, gather your elements, return to your seat, and hold on to them. Would you take a moment and commune with God, spend time with him, reflect on the cross, look forward to Christ coming again, and consider how you can live in light of that future hope. This is also an opportunity for us to confess our sins before God so there would be no barrier 
between us and him as we take of the bread and the cup. The symbols that you hold in your hand, they're powerful. The bread represents the newness of life in Christ. It gives us spiritual nourishment. The cup, it gives us a picture of the blood of Jesus that was spilt on the cross for our sins. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 24, the apostle Paul refers back to the words of Jesus, who before he was to be betrayed, he gathered together with his disciples. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, we read these words. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take of the bread. And in verse 25, it says this. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, this drink of the cup. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for heavenly wisdom. Thank you for the reminder through your word that you have called us to a living faith, a faith that is shown in wise living. Father, this week I pray that you would protect us from the temptation to be drawn to earthly wisdom, to wanting our backs scratched, to wanting to promote ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. Father, may we be reminded through your word today that as we go forth this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, throughout this entire week, that your word would, would ring so loudly in our ears that we would be drawn to a heavenly wisdom that seeks not our own interest, but the interest of others. That we'd be peacemakers in a world that needs to know the peace of Jesus. So thank you for the book of James. Thank you for the challenge that we receive in your word every time we open it up. And this week, may we look and behave more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.